1: You're listening to
2: a Mamma Mia podcast. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we have recorded this podcast on, the
0: Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures.
1: This is Mamma Mia Daily. The three stories you need to hear today, read by the women who wrote them. I'm editor of mamamia.com.au, Melody Tay, and on today's show, trash bags, carnier, and high fashion, and the psychology behind dating the bad guy. But first, what happens when you climb the career ladder, but don't quite like the destination?
0: I climbed the career ladder to land my dream job, then I stepped away, by me, Claire Stevens. When you're growing up, no one tells you that achievement will rarely, if ever, feel how you expect it to. That you might work for a year to save up for an overseas holiday and be in a bad mood the day you land. That you might win an award that suddenly feels like it has absolutely nothing to do with you. That you might climb the career ladder to get your dream job, only to realise it's no longer what you want. That's what happened to me. It's 2015 when I first walk into the Mamma Mia office. I have an honours degree in psychology and I'm currently doing a master's of research about the relationship between obesity and eating disorders. My sister and I have been writing recaps of The Biggest Loser and an editor at Mamma Mia saw one of them. She sent them to Mia Friedman, who has reached out to my sister and I and invited us to come into the Mamma Mia office for a meeting. I hadn't known what to wear because I've never actually been in an office environment before. My previous jobs have been at a golf club, a video shop, at a school and teaching at a university. Jeans and a nice top, my cousin had told me, providing a brief of the Surrey Hills work uniform. So I'm in an office, in jeans and a nice top, speaking to four of the most impressive women I've ever met. They ask us what we want to do, and while my sister has a quick answer, I don't. I just want to be here, I want to say. I want a desk and a computer and I want to write. I somehow get exactly that. The first day I spend in the office, I go to stand-up, a morning meeting where the writers pitch their stories for the day. They throw around an inflatable boob and share their ideas. It takes a few months, but I start to feel at home there, and I realise it's the first time I've ever truly felt like I belong. These women are my people. They challenge me and surprise me, and the more of them I get to know, the more impressed I am. I'm an assistant, then I'm a content producer, and I realise I love this. I love the pace. I love that no two days are the same. I love the decision-making and the ideas and the instant feedback loop and the community. That's when I realise I want to climb the ladder. I want to be the editor. I don't know how long it will take, maybe years and years and years, but I care. I care enough to focus and work hard and learn and fail privately and fail publicly and fail again and I keep going. I become weekend editor and I make so many mistakes, embarrassing ones. But I'm competitive and results-driven and I keep trying. For two and a half years, I'm in that role, and then I get promoted to morning editor. My shift starts at 6am, and it's always a shock. I'm now formally managing members of the team and taking on more senior responsibilities. I get a better understanding of how everything works, the team, the decisions, the strategy, and six months later, the editor position opens up. I want it more than I can remember wanting anything. Part of the application process involves presenting my ideas for how we can change and grow, and my presentation is 35 slides long. It takes me a week, but it's really taken me four years. It's been built in all the mistakes I've made and all the ideas I've listened to. It's been built in stand-up meetings and after-work drinks and early mornings and lunchtime conversations and reading and listening and absorbing. I get the job and I cry. It's challenging and I feel like I'm always pretending just a little bit to be confident in my decisions but I thrive under pressure, I want to learn, and I'm in awe of the people I work with. I love this. And then I don't. I don't know when it happened and I don't have one reason why. I think it came in tiny realisations over months and months. I realise there are creative things I want to do that I simply don't have time for. I'm constantly beating myself up for not writing more, not creating more, but there isn't any time. There is always more I can give my job and I always want to give it. I start to notice what I don't enjoy. I don't like meetings. I find them stressful and know I would rather just be doing the things rather than talking about them. I don't feel like I'm good at managing people. I'm not direct enough and I have a desperate need for people to like me. That's not good for a manager or for the person reporting to them. I like to work on things alone. I like to own a project and see it come to life. But you can't do that when you're leading a creative team. You need to give people buy-in and that's what ultimately makes the final product better. I'm not a consistent, organised, transparent worker. I like to binge work. That's not fun for anyone. I also start to notice what I was jealous of. I'm not typically a jealous person, but when I watch some of the people around me, I feel a pang. They're taking risks. They're creating. They're stepping outside their comfort zone over and over again, and they're getting something out of it that I'm no longer getting. I want that, and I no longer love what I have. So I step back. It's been almost one year since I made that decision. I'm now an executive editor at Mamma Mia, part-time, where I'm able to work for the company I love and believe in while also pursuing my own creative projects. It's really, really hard. I've floundered and my motivation has waxed and waned, and what if I never create anything moderately good and all of this is severely humiliating? But having the freedom to make this decision has taught me that external achievement, like getting the job you desperately wanted, is no guarantee for happiness or satisfaction. I think we're meant to become attached to the process of what we do rather than the outcome, whether that's in the sport we play or the music we create or the books we write or the children we raise. That's probably where happiness comes from. I'm not sure yet, but I'll
2: let you know when I find out. I'm Erin Doherty, the senior health and beauty writer at Mamma Mia, and here's why you always find yourself dating the bad guy, according to a psychologist. Every girl has that friend. You know the one. She's forever stuck in a spinning wheel of dating the bad guy. The kind of person who seems to be covered in red flags. They're emotionally unavailable, impulsive, borderline narcissistic, always guarantee heartbreak. Yet, for some strange reason, it seems like it's just her type, right? As it turns out, the allure of always going for the bad guy might not be as clear-cut as you might think. We reached out to psychologist Nancy Sicano from Listen to find out more. For the purposes of this article, we're using the term bad guy for all genders and gender expressions. Because yes, a bad guy can be anyone. So, are bad guys just bad people? When it comes to what makes people jerks, Nancy said bad guys are not actually always terrible people. In fact, we often have a misconception that someone has to be one or the other, which isn't necessarily the case. While there are definitely bad people out there, she says the way someone behaves can be due to their personality, but most of the time it really comes down to how they respond to a specific situation given their circumstances at the time. She says, What is currently happening in your life will sometimes affect how you treat someone, and while that isn't any excuse, it can certainly make you appear like the bad guy from time to time. So, what does it mean if you always go for the bad guy? According to Nancy, our attraction to the bad guy can sometimes be a reflection of our own personal narratives. She says, we don't want to get into the habit of victim-blaming or blaming ourselves for someone else's behaviour, but we can sometimes play a role in it. This could be because we're attracted to their confidence or adventurous spirit or the attractiveness rather than the personality. There's also the theory that women who have an inner rebellious spirit are attracted to people who might be able to release that out of them. Often these kind of rebellious qualities are repressed during childhood particularly in women, meaning you may be drawn to a bad guy as a way of vicariously acting on these traits. Interesting. Despite the fact that you know that these kind of qualities will make them an unsuitable partner in the long term, a lot of women will feel that the potential pain is worth it. Empathy can sometimes play a role in this too. Thanks to pop culture Almost every bad guy has some sort of traumatic backstory and could even be considered the victim. She says some women have a need to nurture, protect, fix or save a bad guy and therefore they tend to be more attracted to and often excuse their bad guy behaviour. So there you have it. All the evidence that dating a bad guy is way more complex than we all thought.
3: The Most Expensive Garbage Bag in the World by me, Tamara Holland. When is a garbage bag not a garbage bag? When it's a $2,577 Balenciaga trash bag, apparently. An accessory from the high-end designer label has gone viral because it closely resembles your run-of-the-mill kitchen tidy bag, only the price tag is far beyond what you'd pay for a roll of 20 at Woolies. It comes in classic black, blue, and white leather made to look like plastic, and even has those ties at the top in place of straps. The bags debuted at the brand's autumn-winter show earlier this year, with models toting them down the runway in the same way you would carry your rubbish out on bin day. It's funny, right? Joke's on us, yeah? You can sell us anything. Even fancy bin liners. Something, something, capitalism, something. The irony seems to have been lost on label ambassador Kim Kardashian, who proudly posted on her Instagram about getting her hands on the accessory. Look what I got, she said. I got the trash bag from the show. I'm so excited. She shared this in a video posted to her Instagram stories, giving followers a closer look at the style. Musing over the design, Balenciaga's creative director Demner, who goes by first name only, told WWD, I couldn't miss an opportunity to make the most expensive trash bag in the world, because who doesn't love a fashion scandal? I can think of a few people. With the cost of living rising and families struggling as much of the world faces a recession, it's not really irreverent or subversive to promote a product like this. It's just incredibly out of touch. But that's the thing about selling people something masquerading as actual garbage. There's a consumer appetite for it. An image taken at a Gap store recently went viral after Kanye West's latest Yeezy Gap collaboration with the Heritage brand finally launched. The photo showed items being sold out of giant black overflowing bags sitting on the floor. According to the Twitter user who shared the image, the sales associate said Ye got mad when he saw they had it on hangers and this is how he wanted it. The user added, They won't help you find your size too, you just have to dig through everything. Whether it's a social experiment or a PR stunt, making people dumpster dive for clothing still feels like a weird flex in this climate. But the reality is that brands with enough clout know people will buy just about anything with a designer logo, or even better, buy into the if-you-know-you-know prestige of Ye's Yeezy Gap range, which is full of nondescript hoodies and t-shirts. They haven't read The Room, but why should they when fans will fork out a few weeks' rent for an item with cult status? The hype is real. The same goes for a plain white Prada tank currently retailing for $1,180. It's just an ordinary cotton singlet with a metal Prada logo. So why the outrageous price tag? At the Autumn Winter Collections, the humble white tank was singled out by fashion media as the key item of the season. It appeared on runways at Prada, Loewe, Bottega Veneta and Miu Miu. So yeah, a Bond singlet will cost you a lot less, but it won't carry that logo. This is nothing new. The fashion industry has a long history of elevating basic shit to aspirational levels. But in 2022, we're over it. We don't want it. Household items are expensive enough as it is. Thanks.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Mamma Mia Daily. And for more from our writers, make sure you check out their online profiles in the show notes. I'm Melody Tay, editor of mamma mia.com.au. Our show's executive producer is Talissa Bazzaz, and our audio editor is Tom Lyon. See you next time with the three stories you need to hear read by the women who wrote them. This podcast was made by Mamma Mia. If you want to support women's media, we'd love it if you became a Mamma Mia subscriber. It costs as little as $5.75 a month. For more information, see the link in our show notes.